John chapter 1. We will be beginning in verse 35. Uh, we are ambitious today. We're going to try to make it all the way down to verse 50 before we walk out of the building today. I think we can do it. I'm confident we can do it. Um, in the first service, we will cover all the way down to verse 42. And it's broken up that way because what we're going to see today is a continuation of what we just had read in the previous verses. And we know that uh, after John the Baptist had been questioned about who he was and what he was doing by the, the religious people there, uh, the day after that, he made that declaration that we talked about, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus at this point. Jesus had been in the wilderness of 40 days and 40 nights being tempted. He comes out of that wilderness temptation and he passes across the place where John the Baptist was, to which John the Baptist makes the declaration, this is the Lamb of God. And then we see that the next day following that, this series of events is going to take place. And, and what these verses are going to show us is uh, the early um, interactions between a few of his uh, disciples and Jesus. So we're going to see the early stages of this. We're going to see this, this early introduction between these four people and Christ. You know, we see the end of what they've done, and we look to the Scripture, and we, we see all the miraculous things they witnessed, and we see all that they had done with following Jesus. But today, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, and we're going to be breaking this down into two sections because it, it, this, this text breaks it down into two sections. In the first group we're going to talk about is Andrew and Simon. And then the second service, we're going to talk about Philip and Nathaniel. So these four, and possibly a mystery fifth, we may mention in here as well. But this is uh, the text, and this is what the point of this is. This is the day after John the Baptist had declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God. So, with that as context, let's start in verse 35, and let's go down to verse 42. It says this, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, first, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. What an amazing few verses that we've just read as these men are introduced to the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be here today. Lord, we are long every week to get to this place to hear your word and to fellowship with your people. Lord, we 
are thankful for that opportunity. And Lord, I pray that you would, at this moment, begin to stir our hearts and souls. That you would allow them to be ready to receive the words that are from you today, Lord. The words of truth that are found in the pages of your word. Lord, we are unable to understand this on our own, in our flesh. So we ask that the spirit of all truth guide us today. That we would see the beauty, the joy, the depth, and all that there is in these verses. Help us today, God. Give me the words to speak. Lead us into truth. And let us love you more and follow you more deeply. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 35 tells us the next day after what we had just talked about last time we met, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, this is an important thing because John had not just come on the scene a day ago. He had not just started this preaching process and, and speaking this message of repentance and baptism that the Messiah was coming. He had done it for a while. And in the process of his ministry, he had people that were following him. They were listening to his words. They were listening to his teachings. And, and they were going with him. And, and he was teaching them these things of the Old Testament. And, and we know we, we have to know that one of the messages that he was speaking to them was the same message that he was speaking to the whole crowds of that time. The Messiah is coming. And no doubt that John the Baptist would go back to the, to the Old Testament and he would show them from Scripture, look, he's coming. This is the Messiah and he's coming. He would teach them all the things that he was uh, willing to teach them and what he knew, and, and he didn't know who the Messiah was until he baptized Jesus that day, but he knew that he was coming, the Messiah was coming. And at this point, John the Baptist had disciples. He's with his disciples. We know that he's with two this day. He's standing around. He's talking with these two disciples. And at that time, as he's standing there with these two, Jesus walks by them. And John makes the declaration again, behold, the Lamb of God. I wonder what went through their mind. How long they had been listening to John the Baptist speak and to teach on the coming of the Messiah. And then out of nowhere, as they're just having this conversation, we don't know what the conversation is, but that conversation quits quickly, is abruptly interrupted by one declaration. That's him. That's the one I've been telling you about. Behold, the Lamb of God. And we know that as John the Baptist is introducing Christ, that his ministry is going to take a, a backstage because now the Messiah and the main one is on the scene. And something interesting happens here. As soon as this declaration is heard in verse 36, verse 37 tells us an interesting fact here. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. See you, John. We're following him. We don't follow men. We follow him. That's the call of a Christian, is that we follow him. And these two begin to follow him. And in verse 38, it tells us, here's this interaction. As, as Jesus is walking and they begin to follow him, as they begin to leave John the Baptist, Jesus turned and he saw them following him. And he says to them, what do you seek? Why are you following me? What is it you want? Why are you following me? 
What is it you want? And they answer with respect. They answer with this onerous title and they say, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? You see what they want to do here is this. They've heard from John the Baptist. They've heard these truths that he's proclaimed, that there is the Messiah coming. And now John has said, this is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God, which I've told you about. And they begin to follow him. They want to ask him questions. They want to get into his mind. They want to talk to him. They want to confirm these stories. They are seeking answers. Is this God? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one? And it wasn't good enough just to hear it from John. They wanted to know themselves. Isn't that what we're called to do when preachers preach or people tell you things that it's not enough just to take their word for it, but we're to examine the scriptures on our own and to find out and to examine to see if the things that are being taught are in consistency with the word of God. And even though they had heard John the Baptist declare this and all the teaching that he had taught them, they want to follow and seek answers from him. So they ask him, where are you staying? In verse 39, he says to them, come, and you will see. You want to find out where I'm staying? I'm going to take off walking. You follow me. You want to see where, come on. You can follow me. You can talk to me. You can ask any question you want. You want to know, come on. That's the invitation from him. It says, so they came and saw where he was staying, and, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, this in that time, in Jewish time, it would have been about 4 p.m. So they find this place, and they come to this place, and we don't know where that place is. We don't know who he was staying with. We don't know anything about that place, except for he came to this place, to where he had been staying. And at that time, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Not 3, that would have been cool. But not three, four. And, and the reason I think three is, uh, well, I said cool. That's probably not the most relevant uh, term or uh, reverent term to speak of the, uh, the time of three o'clock. Because the time of three o'clock is so important in the Bible. Uh, the, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon was deemed the hour of mercy. And we can go, and, and just to give a few examples, we could start in the earliest part of the Bible, and we could work all the way through. We could see 3 o'clock is very important. Just to name a few, we know that the Passover lamb would be slain and be slaughtered and sacrificed at 3 in the afternoon. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, we know that that would be the time the Passover lamb was sacrificed. We know that when Elijah is on Mount Carmel and that scene where he's calling on God and God brings fire down and, and oh, licks up all the water and, and has that major victory on Mount Carmel that day against the prophets of Baal there, that that was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we know that if the Passover lamb in the Old Testament was sacrificed at 3, Christ is the Passover lamb fulfilled. And we know that it was at 3 p.m. on that day that Christ took his last breath. 3 p.m. is the hour of mercy, and as you're reading through the Bible, I challenge you, if you see that time, stop and look, and uh, there's probably a good event that's going on at that time or some significance there, but not three, four. Four o'clock, they arrive here, and it says that they stayed the day with him. Can you imagine that? If you had all day and all night to speak with the Son of God, the Son of Man, what would you talk about? What questions would you ask? What would you want to know? 
Andrew had this privilege. All that John the Baptist had told him, all that he had heard, he's asking, he's questioning, he's, incur- he's curious, he's wanting to know. And the Lord had given him this amazing privilege to ask all these questions, speak with him for all this time. What an amazing event that was. And we look into verse number 40. And it gives us a clue. I said that one of them was Andrew. That is true. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew never really gets any credit. We're here. Andrew's the first one who really goes and starts to talk to Jesus and follow him. And how is Andrew described? The brother of Simon Peter. Living in the shadow almost of Peter, because we know the things of Peter and we know all about him. But did you see that he only mentions one disciple there? Or of the John, John the Baptist. He had two disciples that were following Jesus, but it says... One of them who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Who's the other one? It's not Peter. Andrew's going to go get Peter here in just a little bit. But there's a mysterious, unnamed person here, a follower of John the Baptist that is unnamed. And you can, you can look that whole text over, you're never going to find it. It's not there. But most scholars will believe the fact that it is not there is a great clue to whom it is. Who wrote this letter? John, the Apostle John. And John never references himself in this as John or me or I. It is the one whom Jesus loved. And most scholars, most tradition, most consensus opinion is the fact that it's unnamed and the fact that he's witnessing these things that would conclude that it very likely, you can't confirm it, but a great possibility that this other disciple was John the Apostle the one who wrote this letter. So it could have been that John the Apostle was a a follower, disciple of John the Baptist. We see that John uh, has quoted John the Baptist twice when he says, it is like John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me is before me. You see all these little details we don't know, but we can start to get a, a very well brought together thought. And we can reason through this we don't know that, but most reputable scholars will say that the other was John the, John the Apostle. We don't know, but interesting to stop and just maybe think about that at the time. So what's the conclusion? What happens after this conversation? What is the, what is the outcome? What is the result of Andrew and possibly John spending this whole time questioning Jesus? What is the outcome? Well, we see that. We see that outcome in verse 41. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He's convinced. Andrew has been there the whole day, the whole night with Christ. He's listened to him. He's heard him explain all the things of Scripture. And Andrew is convinced. He is fully in belief here. And he leaves. And the first person that he runs to is his brother, Simon. I bet he was kicking up dust. Can you imagine that? If you found the Messiah, the one that had been 
uh, prophesied about in the Old Testament. He runs as fast as he can and he finds his brother Simon. And, And what a message he says, we have found the Messiah. We found the one who is the one who will come and rescue us. We found the Lamb of God. We have found him. The Old Testament has spoke about him. John the Baptist has told us about him. And now he's in our very midst. We have found him. Which translated means Christ. Let me say this again. I say it all the time when we come to these places. Jesus' last name was not Christ. I know that's a lot of people think that. His name was not Jesus, first name, last name, Christ. Christ was who he is, his title. He was the anointed one. In the Old Testament, Messiah is what was referred to as anointed one. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it picks up Christ, meaning the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the one who's coming. This is the declaration that Andrew goes and speaks to his brother Simon. Interesting here. His name's not Peter at this point. It's Simon. And there's going to be some amazing events that you're getting ready to see in these next verse or two of the importance of that name change. But he goes and finds his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Let me say a few things before we get to that. That these two men, this is the early call, uh, this is the early uh, moments in coming to Christ and seeing Christ and understanding who he is. Their call into a full-time discipleship and apostleship will come later into the the New Testament. But here they uh, they are laying their eyes on Christ. They are talking with him. It's these early, sweet, powerful moments in these men's life. They would become apostles. These two right here, which would be one of the highest callings that any human being could ever have on this planet. And yes, just so we're crystal clear, there are no modern day apostles. If someone tells you that, they are in error and absolutely against Scripture. But here's some verses. There's some verses of Andrew and Peter here. And we're seeing the early days of their interaction with Jesus. But now let's look ahead and see some of the things that they did accomplish and some of the things they did see with Christ, just so you can see the start and where they would end up as well. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 16, it says this. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when that And when they came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who is also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we see that they were disciples first, and then they were called into this life, into this role of apostleship. But you see that those two men's name is there. What what an honor that God would use these fishermen, these unworthy, 
quote-unquote, not pristine, not privileged people, not well-known, not high-class people to be his apostles. He would eventually do that. But John chapter 1 is giving us these sweet early moments of questioning him, speaking with him, and understanding who he is. I do want to draw your attention just briefly to the first verse of that scripture there in Luke 6, verse 12. It says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. That's important. There's only a handful of times in the New Testament where Jesus withdraws and spends uh, a substantial amount of time by himself in prayer. So when Jesus goes alone into prayer, it is a very important event. What happened here that's so important? He calls his apostles. He gets alone with the Father and he spends this time and he comes down out of that solitude from prayer and he calls these 12 men to be apostles. We see another time where Jesus went up by himself to pray. We find that in the book of Mark and Mark gives us this detail that Jesus had went up to the mountain to pray and then he came down and the disciples were in the boat and Jesus comes walking on the water. And they are scared and they are panicked and they are terrified. They think they've seen a ghost. And what does he say? Fear not. Ego I me. It was after that time of solitude and prayer that he would make that first public declaration that he was I am. We know that he went alone to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane where his disciples were back sleeping. So when we see that Christ is going alone to pray, we perk up, we take note, we look at that, that's important. And here, he's calling the 12 apostles, two of those which we're mentioning right now in John chapter 1, Peter, who will be named Peter, but Simon and Andrew. You see the starting of this life of following Christ. Mark chapter 13 is the next account. Now, Mark chapter 13 is one of the most controversial sections of Scripture in all the Bible. Also to be... uh, Paralleled in there with Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Now, when I say Matthew 24, most of you then will probably understand why it's controversial. This is eschatology. This is where it talks about uh, the ending. uh, uh, When will these things happen? The, The destruction of the temple, the sign of your coming. Well, Matthew 24 speaks of that. Luke 21 speaks of that. Mark 13 speaks about that. And let's just see if we see anybody here that's present at this time. It says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Talking about the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Scholars have debated those questions right there for centuries and millennia, that wanting to know what that means. And here we see that Andrew and Peter was part of this group that was asking those questions, that were privileged to have that experience with Christ. And John chapter 1 tells us the first few sweet days of their interaction with Christ. We also see that in Matthew chapter 4 there, that is when they they get their full summons to follow him on a full-time basis. And as the rabbi would call the students, and they would spend their life dedicated to literally following him. 
everywhere he went. And we find that call there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It says, when, they called, when he called to them, they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So you see some of these things that they would be privileged to, some of the things in their life. Uh, we know what Peter had, has been through. We won't spend a lot of time on him because we're probably more familiar with what Peter had went through and the events surrounding him. But I just wanted you to see that and kind of get this, the, the point of what's happening here. Andrew, we have found the Messiah. Peter goes back, or Simon goes back. And think about what that interaction was the first time that Simon comes and he's, he's being told that they found the Messiah. Andrew brings him back to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, You're Simon, the son of John. What? <laughs> How do you know that? How do you know me? You're the son of John. Some, will, some transliterate that as Jonas or Jonah. Some translations will say son of John. And then Jesus says something amazing. Peter walks up to him. You're the Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas. Which translated means Peter. It was at that moment that Jesus tells him that he would be called Cephas, or, yeah, Cephas, which translates from the Aramaic to the Greek as Peter, which translates into rock. But where do we see this final, or this big fulfillment of that, that, that word, Peter and rock, and where do we see all this come together at? We see the early stages of it here. And remember what brought Peter to Jesus. We have found the Messiah. That's the news that Andrew had given to Peter that made Peter go and to inspect this situation, to examine Christ. We have found the Messiah. And you, Peter, your name, you, Simon, very hard, you, Simon, will be called Peter, which means rock. So now we have this rock and we have this profession that he's the Messiah. This is all going to come to this climax. It's going to come to its head. It's going to come to the biggest point of its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 16. Let's turn there. Peter may have not understood what in the world was happening when he says, you are Cephas, you will be called Peter, which means rock. Okay, what does that even mean? But he would know one day. He would know that Jesus was and is definitely the Messiah. And that name would come into absolute clear sight in Matthew chapter 16. Let's read this. And then we will spend the ending of this service explaining this confession of Peter. It says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let me say this. Next week, we will be all over Son of Man. There are a lot of titles that are used for Jesus in the, in the Bible. But the Son of Man has a special, special usage of who uses it, who uses it the most, and what it means. That'll be next week. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here's Simon Peter. I want you to think now about this first interaction we see in John chapter 1. We found the Messiah, Peter. Simon, okay, let's go. He comes to Jesus. Jesus says, you're Simon, son of John, but you're going to be called Peter, which means the rock. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. Translated, you are the Messiah. You are him. No matter what other people say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. We see Barjona there. Quick, in the, I just want to say this briefly, that anytime you see the word bar in front of a name, that means son of. We know that in John chapter 1, it said Simon, son of John. Here it is saying Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of John. Anytime you see the word bar, it means son of. We see this in the miracle of blind Bartimaeus. And we know that this was written in the book of Mark. But Mark is also written, uh, it, it tends to be to a Gentile audience. And we see that because what does he say? He says, this is blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. A, a, he, a Jew would have known that's a double use of the word. To say that someone is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, is saying the same thing twice. His name is Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus. So Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, is the same thing. So when he says Simon Barjona, he's saying Simon, son of John. That's, if you see that in the, the Bible, that's what that means. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did, how did Peter come about this revelation? Was it his own will? Was it his own power? Was it his own strength? No. Who revealed this announcement and this proclamation to him? It was through God and God alone. That God chose to open his eyes, to give him this revelation. It was not by flesh, it was not by blood, but it was by the sovereign act and the power and the determination of God in heaven. And he says, I will also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. I want to stop there. This is a very important text to the Roman Catholics. They take this verse and they say, Ha ha! Peter, you are the rock to which the church is founded. And upon you, Peter... I will build my church upon the rock that means Peter. We know that Peter means what? Translates rock, but does it? Is that the primary reason? Is there, is there any subtleties in that that we need to look at? I think there is. Let's look at these two words here really quickly. It's on your sheet. Peter's name is this, Petros. And if you look at the Greek... In this text, here's what it says. Here's how you would read this. I also say that you are Peter, or Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Two different words. He does not say, upon you, Peter, I'll build my church. That's not what he says. He says, you are Petros. You are. I gave you that name in John chapter 1. But upon this Petra... I will build my church. 
We'll come back to that at the end, but I want to give you the scene. I want to give you the geographic uh, importance to this setting and this scene. That most scholars would tell us that this place and this scene where this took place had some quite significance to what you just read. This place took the scene, this confession took place in Caesarea Philippi. Now, do you believe that God is a God of coincidence and chance? I do not. I believe He's sovereign. I believe that there is no maverick molecules, right? This confession by Peter that Jesus is the Christ could have took place anywhere. Would you agree with that statement? He's God. He can, he can make the scene take place anywhere. He could have said, Peter, you know what? Uh, in my providence, you're going to declare I'm the Messiah at the place that I called you into myself. Uh, let's go back to the place where uh, you were out on your boat or you had been out all night on your boat and you had cleaned the nets and, and I came into your, your boat and then uh, I, I, we caught all these fish that you couldn't do and then you saw my glory and I called you and you followed me. Let's go back to that place and it would be at that place that you will declare I'm the Messiah. He didn't do that. He could have said, well, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to that place. Let's go to that holy city. And it is at that moment that the declaration that I'm the Messiah will come out of your mouth. He didn't do that either. He takes Peter and these people, and now they are at Caesarea Philippi. There's importance to this city. We see it in the Old Testament. That it is this place that Jeroboam would introduce idolatrous practices to the children of Israel, to the Israelites, and they would begin to worship the false god of Baal. I realize that I've been saying that wrong all my life, and it's really hard to correct yourself. It's always been Baal. You know it is Baal. Baal. That's hard, so bear with me. But it was here where Jeroboam would introduce the idolatrous worship of Baal here. This was a central hub, a place of idolatrous worship. We see it in the Old Testament. This place here is where that took place. Then the Greeks came along. And the Greeks would, at this place, be the central place where they would offer up false worship to the pagan god Pan. And in, the, in this scene, they would also uh, commit these, uh, these sacrificial uh, events, and it would be a horrible, horrible scene that would take place here. Why is he here? It would be later on that the Romans would name this place Caesarea after Caesar Augustus. It's idolatry. It's false gods, it's false worldviews, it's everything at this place. Why is he here? Out, well, let's go back, let me, let me say this first. But what's even more amazing about this backdrop is the geographic importance of what is happening here. At Caesarea Philippi, the thing that will stick out to you is at this point, there's a huge rock face. A huge wall of massive, overtowering, monumental rock that sticks out to all that can be seen. Hundreds of feet tall, hundreds of feet wide. It is this massive rock that would have been located. You can get up on your internet and look at this place. It's still there. It is the rock at Caesarea Philippi. 
And in this rock face, there are niches that are carved out with idolatrous, pagan, uh, uh, false gods of Pan. And and you could see that they would niche this in and carve this out upon this rock. And they would come and they would uh, perform these idolatrous, false worship events. And at the bottom of this massive rock face, at the bottom of this massive rock, there was a gaping hole. It was an opening. And out of this opening came springs of water. And these springs would eventually lead down into the Jordan River. The historian Augustus, or, uh, nope. Josephus, sorry, excuse me. Josephus said this, speaking about that opening in that water, it says this, the ancient Greeks who worshiped their god Pan at this occasion believed that this opening was the entrance to the underworld. So now you have this massive rock, and at the bottom you have this gaping hole filled with water and they believed that this mysterious mythological river called the River Styx, would, this water would flow out of it, and it would be that water that would connect the underworld or Hades to the world, to the earth. Josephus described this cave as a deep cavern filled with water, the bottom of which no one had ever reached. It was a massive structure. And the, the pagans and the Greeks, they believed that at the bottom of this rock, at this opening where this water was, that that was literally the gate's of hell. It was the gates of Hades. That was their underworld. And now you see Christ. Maybe him and Peter standing right here. And behind them, you see this pagan place. This massive rock with all of these idolatrous carvings in it. And these people worshiping all these things. And then at the bottom of that is what they believe was the opening to the underworld. The opening to Hades. Literally, those people believed at the bottom of this rock was the entrance to the gates of hell. It is that place. It is this location. That could be the backdrop of this confession. Do you see... He could have had it, this take place anywhere. But there's only one true God. There's not other gods. There's not any other way to the Father. It's only through Christ. And there's only one church. And now, Peter makes the proclamation to which the church rests and has its foundation. What does he say? You are the, are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he says, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you are Peter. Look what Peter means. It's Petros. Look in your sheet here. It says this, that what is the name for Peter? Translated means this, properly a stone or a pebble. Such a small rock found along a pathway, then stands in contrast to what? Petra. He's saying, Peter, you will do great things. 
You will be the one who gave the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You will be one of my closest people, Peter. But you know what? You are a small stone in Christ's church. Because you're not the rock that this church is built on. You're not the one to which it comes and it goes. But the confession that I am the Messiah, that is the rock. That is the Petros, or Petra, that the church is established on. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is not these pagan gods that you see on this wall. It is not the the floods of people that come to this place to worship the unknown. It is not the the gates of hell that they think are here that are going to be the answer to all these things and provide the power of this kingdom. No, 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 no. It is on the power of what you just said, the rock of what you just said, that I am the Messiah and I will build my church. He says it's an isolated rock and a Petra, which is the rock that Christ is the Messiah. That's a cliff. It always means a stone which such a man may throw versus the Petra, a projecting rock or cliff, which is exactly the background we see in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus tells them that he will build a church on him as he is the Messiah in the gates of Hades, but they will not overpower it. I want to spend just a second on talking about Peter being a small stone. He's not the Pope. Church wasn't founded on him, he's a Petros. The church was founded on the Petra, which is Christ, that he is the Messiah. But look what he says here. I want you to get this imagery of Peter being a stone, a smaller stone, Jesus being the rock, the Messiah, the cornerstone, if you will, to which all of his church is laid. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 6, it says, And coming to him as a living stone. Interesting. He uses stone here. Which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Remember, you are the Christ. You're right. You're right, Petros. And upon that Petra, I will build my church. And now you hear you in 1 Peter chapter 2, you see that. What does he say? We're all like what? Living stones. Being stacked. Being built to make the what? To make Christ's church. There's importance in Peter's name. Peter had one of the greatest, highest callings that a human being could ever have, but the church was not founded on Peter. He is not the rock to which we set the church, but it is the Messiah who builds his church. And just like Peter, this small stone, we all like small stones are being built, stacked one on top of another one on top of another, being brought by God. Remember how we talked about this, that a stone doesn't pick himself up and try to put himself on the... the, Have you ever seen that? If you ever laid a foundation, the stone does not just sit there and be like, hey, I think I'll just wheel myself up and onto the foundation. No, 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 no. The foundation is laid by the stone layer who grabs the stone and he places it into the foundation and he continues to build it up. And that's what God does to his church. 
He seeks, he saves, he grabs those who have his lost sheep, those stones, and he puts them into his church, and the church is being built upon the Messiah. One stone, one soul, one person at a time until the full, glorious kingdom of God is established. It's quite the amazing picture when you see the background of this confession at Caesarea Philippi. The church does not have many ways to heaven. The church is not being built on false uh, ideas and false gods. It's built on the Messiah. Maybe that's the reason that he stood there and had this conversation with Peter. But you remember where we started? Peter. Or Simon. You shall be called Peter. Because you will give the proclamation. You will give the announcement. You will believe it in Matthew 16 that I am the Messiah. It comes full circle. We see Peter all through the scripture. We see him in Matthew 16. But what about when he first came into contact with Christ. It's quite the scene. And in this, when he tells this to Peter and Peter confesses that he is the Christ, he gives two promises. Look at verse 18. Here's your two promises that Christ gave. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, on this Petros, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He gives you two promises here. Number one is that he will build his church. And he's doing that. He's doing that one stone at a time. There has been attacks on the church, the true church. There's been attacks on Christians for millennia. They've tried to stop it in every way. They've tried to stop people on every, in every way. They've tried to destroy the church. They've tried to destroy Jesus. They've tried to kill his apostles and his prophets. They did. They did. Andrew and Peter are going to die horrific deaths. Tradition says that they were both crucified. One tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. The other says that Andrew was just crucified. They will die. They will suffer uh, horrible deaths for this Christ whom they're meeting here in this early moments with him because they know who he is and he's worth following. They've tried to kill Christ. They thought that was the end of it all. Hey, Christianity's done. No, 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 no. He said, I will build my church. It will continuously be built. There is nothing in this world. There's no power in hell. There's no gates of hell. There's nothing in this world that can overpower Christ and him building his church. As bleak as it may look, As a minority, we may look, the church will never be eradicated from this planet because God made that promise to Peter here in Caesarea Philippi. And the promise is immutable because God's promises are immutable. He will build his church. Every sheep will be rescued. Every true believer will come to Christ. It is the promise of Christ. A lot of time has passed since this profession at Caesarea Philippi. And you know what? I can tell you 100% accuracy. He's building his church. There's nothing that can stop him in building his church. And then he also says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Remember, this rock that he was standing uh, more than likely in front of right there, the bottom of that was the gaping hole that they believed power from the underworld was coming from. That was the gates of Hades to these pagans. And he says, not only am I the rock to which the church is built and no other, but this power you think is coming out of the gates of this, of this cave or this opening that you think is all power, let me tell you this, the gates of Hades never overpower it. 
And the Bible tells us the underworld is Hades, which was where we translate into hell. So we see that geographic background, but there's deeper meaning to that. He's not just talking about this cave or this opening here. He's talking about the forces of darkness cannot overpower him. And we, all, we, know, we know that the enemy tries to attack us, doesn't he? He tries to attack us. He tries to weaken us. He tries to discourage us. He tries to just eliminate us. And these attacks sometimes seem not so bad. But sometimes they're relentless. And they come with all fury, don't they? Easy to get discouraged. Easy to get tripped up. You look across the world and you say, wow, Christians are looking like they're just being outnumbered and, and it looks like we're being defeated. No, 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 we're not. The true church is not. This has been raging for millennia. However, here's the comfort that we have. Despite every attack, every war raged, every tactic employed, whatever it may be, Jesus is building His church. One stone after another. And you and I can know with certainty, no matter how bleak, how bad things may be, how intense the attacks of the church are, that God's promises are immutable. And what did he say? The gates of hell will not overpower it, and I will build my church. And the church is founded on Christ, the cornerstone, and that he is the Messiah. Do you remember this? We talked about that if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you can't be a Christian. You have to believe that he's the Son of God, come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why the fact that this declaration that he's the Messiah is what the church is built on. Must be believing of that. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. But we've looked at this possibly a little wrong. I get your attention on it. Over the years. And it struck me. Maybe, you've, maybe you understood this and you're... I wish you would have told me. Because... I've just told you that the gates, are, uh, the attacks of the enemy are furious and they come against us. But God will continue to build the church. But he says the gates of Hades will not prevail. Anybody have gates here? Is it to keep you in or to keep someone out? Gates are a defensive mechanism, aren't they? You don't put up a gate so you keep yourself in. Well, maybe a child, but... Or dog, but you don't say, hey, I'm going to put up, look at my nice gate, look at my nice fence. I can't get out now. It really worked good. No one does that. You put up gates as a defense. And he says the gates of hell cannot stop. Christ building his kingdom. Do you know what that means? Listen to this. This text implies that the building of God's church is active. He's doing it right now. He's actively building his church. He's on the offensive. It's the shepherd who does what? Seek and to save those who are lost. Who does the action? It's the shepherd. He says he seeks. He's actively seeking his sheep. He's actively building the church. 
And no matter how big the fence or the gate or the barrier that the enemy or hell tries to put in front of people, if they're God's sheep, the gates have no chance of stopping him. He will blow the gates down. He will blow the barriers down. There's nothing that can stop the shepherd from seeking and gathering and grabbing and holding his sheep. No matter what is thrown in front of them, no matter what the enemy tries, no matter what the flesh tries to put in front of you, no matter what gate or uh, defense mechanism uh, that they try to use to keep you from God, Christ is actively building his church in the gates of hell will never prevail. If you are a child of God, as much as the flesh hated God before Christ, you didn't, you didn't love God before Christ, before He saved you. You were running from Christ. Everything in the world to keep you from Christ. He blew down that gate, didn't He? No gate, no barrier, nothing's going to stop Him from gathering a sheep. Power is given to God that He is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. There is no power in hell. There is nothing that He is not more powerful than. He is omnipotent, and He is building His church. He has victory. If you are a child of God, know this, that you will be in heaven because He's building His church. It's active, and it's defensive all at the same time. Do you see the importance of this proclamation? We spent time here because he tells Peter upon meeting him, Simon, Simon Barjona, you shall be called Cephas. And that's going to come in a play one day as Caesarea Philippi. When you make the declaration that I am the Messiah, and it is on that declaration that the church is being built. I am the Petra. You are the Petros. I will build my church. He will gather his sheep, and the gates of hell cannot stop him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for these words. Lord, we're thankful that you are building the church. Lord, let us not be discouraged, but let us be encouraged today. To our natural eyes, it's easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to see the hardships we face and uh, the minority that we're in. But God, let us set our attention on your word to, to these promises that you gave to these men this day, that you said that I am the Petra. You are the rock. You are the Messiah to which the church is being built. It is your church, God, and you are building it. And let us be comforted in that. Lord, let us know that no matter what we see, Lord, let us always know that your word is true and that you are prevailing. You are building the church. God, and no power of hell, no gate can stop you. No force, no attack is more powerful than you, but you are working flawlessly and perfectly as you see fit to build your church, Lord. 
And Lord, your church is founded on that fact, that truth that you are the Messiah. You are the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. You are the one that John the Baptist said that this is the Lamb of God. The one who Andrew said, this is the Messiah. The one who Peter declared that is the Messiah. It is you. Lord, let us declare that today because it is the, we must declare that. We must believe it to be in your kingdom. Lord, I thank you that nothing stops you that you're building the church. And let us remember that you have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. You're victorious on the cross. You made a public show of all your enemies on that day. Nothing can stop you. And Lord, we thank you for that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that we have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.